I've noticed a lot in security that, you know, people want to focus on either the cool offensive stuff or, you know, making a difference on the defense side, but they forget that kind of the engine of the industry really is the business part of it. And you can't ignore that. So if you want to make the industry overall better and get rid of all the incentive problems, you have to tackle, you know, where the money is, frankly. You're listening to Security Sandbox, a podcast about the makers and breakers shaping cybersecurity. I'm your host, Sean Sun, and on this episode, Kelly Shortridge schools me on behavioral economics and how it affects our cybersecurity lives. When we make a decision, it's not always made with the most sound and clear thinking. It's absolutely human to process and interpret information to create our own realities, but that can lead to mistakes in our judgment. These types of errors are called cognitive biases. They can influence how we think and act. For example, confirmation bias is when we like to listen to information that confirms what we already know. Another example you may have heard or at least seen is the gambler's fallacy, the concept of, I flipped the tails five times in a row, so there's a much higher chance that the next flip will be heads. But when it's time to make a decision, it's important to take a step back and make sure that our reasoning isn't flawed, especially when it comes to cybersecurity. Kelly Shortridge is the Vice President of Product Strategy at Capsule 8, a security platform that detects and defends your entire Linux production environment. Her background in economics and behavioral economics is a perspective that lets her call out the cognitive biases behind security decision making. On this episode, we talk about how to think clearly about security, how to be a therapist for chief information security officers, and how the dragons from Game of Thrones relate to this industry. Kelly Shortridge, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So you are the Vice President of Product and Strategy at Capsule 8. So what does that mean? What does your day-to-day look like? That's a great question. So as VP of Product Strategy, a big chunk of what I try to do is deeply understand the market. So from CISOs to security analysts, then obviously to the DevOps and operations side, like making sure we really understand the pain points and uh, making sure that in our product, we're obviously solving those pain points. So no day is frankly alike. I know that's kind of a cop-out answer, <laughs> but uh, I may be reading a ton, talking to people externally to the company, speaking to people internally to tackle whatever challenges are happening, doing a lot of writing. Um, like I've been doing quite a few blog posts, so it really looks different day to day, but kind of the overarching theme is making sure that we're meeting the needs of the market. Yeah, I noticed that you have a new blog post about you learning Linux. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, this is really my first role where I've had to actually understand Linux. So I've been learning a ton about it, which has actually been a lot of fun. So what is your learning process like? How do you learn new technical things? So I'm I'm very much a visual learner, learner and I'm a voracious reader. So I start by just having, you know, the prerequisite 90 tabs in the browser open and just devouring as much as I can. And then luckily at Capsulate, I work on an incredibly brilliant team so I can come to them with any questions I have to fill in the gaps, which is super useful. But I would say in general, my learning process is very much that like it's devour as much as I can, figure out my list of questions and then find people who are smarter than I am, at least on the topic and ask them. I think something that many listeners will know is that Capsulate has a new show called Between Two Kernels, which you are the host (laughs) of. Um, yes. What is that? And where did that idea come from? So Between Two Kernels is naturally uh, based on Between Two Ferns. And a big theme of kind of a lot of things I do is trying to poke holes in a lot of the 
the uh, fluff that we have in mm-hmm. the information security industry. There just aren't really many honest conversations and dialogues. You just hear whispers in back rooms uh, about the truth. So between two kernels, the goal is to talk to leaders in the industry, but in a way that actually asks pertinent questions, not just ones to fluff up their ego. When you say fluff, are you talking about like buzzwords and just like things people say that kind of obfuscate what they really mean or yeah so that would definitely include buzzwords but i think it's also when you see interviews with you know legends and leaders in information security it's almost always somehow stroking their ego right like even a podcast like this you're probably not going to ask me about you know why did one of my blog posts suck if it did suck right like uh, generally it's just not something that happens um but i think information security really does need a lot more reality checks in kind of the the information stream that we see, um, even whether it's products or whether it's people, just keeping people a little more honest, I think is a needed aspect that we're missing overall. Yeah, definitely. Has anything surprised you along the way of doing these interviews? Yeah, there have definitely been a few surprises. The, the first one I would say is just that people are surprisingly open to having these kind of honest conversations. So I, I definitely don't think that the kind of status quo we've had of all these, you know, fluff pieces is necessarily what we have to be doing. I think people really are yearning for these honest conversations, even the interviewees. Um, I think also, frankly, the fact that there's been such great response, like it it sounds like a kind of silly thing on paper, but I think we've actually been able to produce also insightful content, not just entertaining content. So what is it like asking? Art Coviello, who is the former executive chairman and CEO of RSA. My first question is, what is it like knowing that the conference you found is now the most hated in information security? Yeah, it's a little daunting, like a, a <laughs> coming for the person who created a conference and telling them basically that their conference sucks. But he was he was totally game. I, I have to say I was a little nervous, but I was pleasantly surprised at his uh, candid response. It's interesting because it almost feels as if this type of fluff and like buzzwords is like a, is like your ticket to entry almost like mm-hmm. by saying these things about your company, like then VCs will take you seriously because now you're now you sound cool and you like i guess how do we promote more honesty uh when we talk about our companies that's something i think about a lot i think again it kind of goes back to even the what you pointed out like the way you even learn like explaining things to people simply i do think that there's a huge gap right now between um one you have people in marketing that frankly are mostly shunned by security people so i don't actually blame marketing people even though i do think the marketing is bad i think also like like any person they have to be taught about the industry they have to be taught like why saying certain things you know like what was it in the episode with halbert like zero trust privilege or whatever it is like explaining why that can be problematic i think another side of it is the vcs are looking for these buzzwords they aren't necessarily looking to understand the technology deeply or even the problems deeply they're kind of looking to make sure that they're keeping up with their other vc peers by investing in the right category which almost always is based on a buzzword and i think frankly the the technology people themselves oftentimes are so enamored with the technology that they've built that they kind of throw up their hands and think that the technology can market itself and that leads back into they don't necessarily work with marketing people to be able to explain these concepts simply so i think it's kind of there's so many different facets i guess to the problem that i don't think there's one key difference that will make it better 
to, uh, so to speak. I do think just calling out the mar- uh, marketing things more. And again, like one thing I do at Capsulate as well, I love our marketing people and I make sure to take time with them and explain kind of like, here's how I think we can explain something more simply and in a more straightforward way. So I think we need more of that. We need more of holding people accountable and also educating like, listen, not everyone wants to hear about these like very buzzword written things. So I think there's more effort required on the part of the technical security people as well. So how do you explain things to uh, the marketing side? It's a lot easier to explain things to marketing people than, uh, for example, CEOs or board of directors, because the marketing people want to do their job well. They have more patience. So I think practice on, um, you know, executives has actually lent itself very well for me to be able to explain it to marketing people. I think uh, that's that's one stigma that I really dislike in general and security is Listen, like I can totally get how sometimes salespeople are obnoxious, but they're not going to get less obnoxious if you just ignore them and pretend like they don't exist, right? You have to actually put in the effort to talk with them. Um, so I think that's that's a huge problem there. So I think just assuming like there's good faith there, they want to do their job well, and just taking the time. I really don't think it's too complicated to explain, you know, why it matters that you can catch like zero day versus crypto miners versus whatever else. Definitely. So I think your perspective in terms of how you go about this type of fluff, um, I think it's unique. Um, I don't think there's too many voices talking about this just yet. I think it's something that definitely is on a lot of people's minds, but um, you've been very vocal about it. Do you think part of your background in economics and behavioral economics has played into that or has aided in that? I think that may be part of it. I don't know if it's a more liberal arts thing, uh, but the college I went to, it was certainly you could not get away with uh, crappily, crappily stated arguments. That's for sure. It was all about writing and persuasively writing. And I think it's difficult with that background when you see totally unpersuasive writing, not to feel a little upset or disappointed. Um, but I think an, another element of it is, frankly, just caring about the business side of things. I've noticed a lot in security that you know people want to focus on either the cool offensive stuff or you know making a difference on the defense side, but they forget that kind of the engine of the industry really is the business part of it and you can't ignore that. So if you want to make the industry overall better and get rid of all the incentive problems, you have to tackle you know where the money is, frankly. Um, what do you mean by incentive problems? Oh man, there are so many incentive problems. We could probably just have an episode uh, <laughs> just about the incentive problems. It can even, as a simple example, would be you know, chief information security officers want to be able to work with venture capitalists because that means they can get advisory positions, which means they can get paid a monthly salary or get equity in companies. So they don't want to speak out about startups. It can also be again the startups themselves want to make sure that their product sells, and so they'll have a huge incentive to pretend like problems are far bigger than they are and spread that fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Um, And again, on the venture capital side, they don't really care if it betters the industry or not. Whatever product in which they invest, they care that they're able to sell it to, you know, whatever acquirer sucker who wants to make sure they have, you know, an IoT security play, right? So they're it's it's almost like an onion. Like you can tackle the macro level incentives and it's just, you know, incentive problems all the way down. So Earlier in the week, I also saw that you had a makeup to security analogy. (laughs) Yeah, it was experimental, but yes. Um, Can you explain a little bit about that? For sure. So the analogy is, um, you know, you can either have a skincare routine, which um, if you're a follower of like, I I love Japanese and Korean beauty, partly because I have like freakishly pale skin. And obviously, like they they pay a lot of attention to that. And particularly their sunscreen is the bomb. So uh, I have like a very uh, multi-layered, I guess, routine 
as far as skincare. And I was thinking, well, I could either spend money on that as I do. It also takes a lot of time, which I find kind of relaxing in the evening, or I can just fake it with, you know, heavier foundation and highlighter and blush and contour and all of that. So it kind of led me to think either you can put in the effort and the money onto ensuring kind of the basics of security hygiene, like making sure everything is segmented network wise, you know, having uh, distributed data rather than the one pot of gold, implementing two-factor authentication, or you can just load on a bunch of technology and try to fake your way to security greatness, right? The equivalent of the foundation and the highlighter. Where it falls down a bit, though, I'm I'm still working it through. And um, I think most people were just excited to talk about makeup rather than poking holes in my analogy, which is totally fine. Um, <laughs> but it's sometimes it's logical, like you it takes forever to figure out the right skincare routine for you. Like it took me at least four years. It takes a lot of time. So it's often reasonable to, you know, fake it instead because everybody wants to look pretty. Right. Um, and if you have the resources, like you're probably doing both. Like some days I also still wear highlighter because it's cool and I feel more like a sparkly unicorn. So, uh, so the theory is like, if you have the resources, you'll make sure the basics are met, but maybe you'll try more innovative technology as well. Um, but yeah, so I'm not sure, I'm not sure if I'll stick with the analogy, but it is a fun one. So going back a little bit, what are some ways you've seen, uh, companies fake it? So many ways. Um, I mean, a lot of it is just the, you know, compliance checklists. And then it's mostly when um, I would say the security team speak up to other people. It's hard to fake it with, you know, actual incidents and stuff. Um, but at least speaking up, you know, if they make sure they have pretty reports and I don't necessarily hate pretty reports, but if they basically make sure that the at least it looks like they understand what's going on and it looks like they have some control and they say, oh, well, we bought whatever, you know, $250,000 blinky box. We're all set. That tends to hide a lot of the problems, whether it's, you know, there's burnout among the team and there's huge team turnover, you know, there isn't great asset management. You can fake that with at least saying like, listen, we have the best of the line protection and, you know, so-and-so big bank uses the same products we do. Meanwhile, you don't have two-factor across all of your salesperson's accounts. Like that's a huge issue. Um, so I would say it's both a mixture of fancy technology as well as like fancy metrics and reporting that ultimately don't really change security posture very much. So when you say that, um, how, is there any way like like people with influence or is there any way for them to actually validate their like $20 million blinky boxes and like show like this is actually useful? Or do you think that the current, I guess, like landscape is not there yet? So that gets into a term called return on security investment, which is something that I, I personally think is somewhat of a holy grail in the industry. I don't think anyone's perfectly there yet. Um, but basically return on security investment, like ROI, just general return on investment is supposed to measure like what's the value you're getting out of a product over time. I haven't really seen any company doing it all that well. Um, I think the first step for a lot of these companies is they need to even figure out like fundamentally, why are they buying that product? Is it just because they think they need it? Like what are the metrics of success? What are the KPIs? Very few companies even start with that. So before I think you can really go into measuring the value, you just have to figure out how do we determine that we're getting value out of it? Is it just because we think we need it? Or is it because like, for example, we want to measure like, is there a reduction of the number of bugs introduced into production? Like are developers actually rating more secure code if you deploy some sort of AppSec tool? Um, but from what I've seen, the measurement isn't necessarily there. And obviously there are caveats around, you know, measurement, you are what you measure. But I think 
no measurement isn't the right solution either. Okay, interesting. What companies or what products do you see uh, have a high return on security investment? So the one I, I constantly mention uh, in my talks, and I love Haroon, is uh, Thinks Canaries. Um, okay. So they they're actually very very reasonably priced, but they're they don't have any VC funding, by the way, which makes them even better in my book. Um, but basically, you can deploy um, an actual physical box. You can pretend it's like a server or a network drive, but also even with your own Canary tokens, it's CanaryTokens.org. You can get free tokens like a PDF, a Word document or a windows drive put it on your machine label it something like super sensitive info or whatever and then if someone clicks on any of the documents or the file folder it'll actually alert you in your email like hey someone accessed this um, which is pretty awesome and obviously the enterprise deployments more sophisticated than that but it's it's actually pretty amazing like what the feedback and responses from customers it's like stupid simple to use it's not overpriced it's incredibly effective there's it's basically all signal not noise so that's immediately what comes to mind with that product as far as a high ROI i think duo security even though they're now you know owned by the cisco overlords was another great example <laughs> of one that was super easy to use and obviously provided a huge difference in um just account security by adding i think everybody at this point understands the value of two-factor authentication they at least made deploying two-factor a lot easier on the back end as well uh how important would you say the the user experience or like how easy a product is to use how important is that to its i guess like return on security investment i think ease of use should honestly be the number one maybe number two priority of any product i think a lot of the problems we see in security are frankly because security software in general is so horrendously unusable, both enterprise right. and on consumer products. I think it's something that's way ignored. Even looking at SIM, for example, like an informal survey I did and just even talking to people like Sims can take over 35 hours a month in just people hours to tune it and maintain it. It's ridiculous. That's not easy to use. And half the time, even when I see demos of other security tools, I have no idea how it works and I have no idea how I would actually use it in practice. So the idea of, you know, someone who's straight out of college or something using it, like no wonder there are no junior security positions open. Everyone has to be an expert just to use the tools. It's ridiculous. So that's, I'd say if there was one area of improvement, like I'm even fine with security tools that don't like work as well, like detection or protection wise, just make them easy to use, make it easy enough for even like a developer to use it. Right. But you don't see that very often. Yeah. I guess the kind of think about what you're saying, um, we need to add more design into cybersecurity and think about design when we create products. Yes. Oh, completely. I mean, that's to me across the board, we need a lot more, uh, partnership between the technical and like less technical sides if you consider design less technical which i don't necessarily um but i think there's generally a sense that i've always gotten that security people look down again it's marketing and sales things like design things that aren't you know super hardcore computer science so i think they respect like electrical engineers that's my impression um but we need more of that and we need more people that um we need more security people actually working with design people to be like, hey, this is like the end user goal. Can you help us figure out how to make this like actually workable rather than totally unusable? And I don't see that nearly enough. What are some bad UX, I guess, things you've seen in like security software? 
I think defaults are the the ones that come up a lot and actually intersects with intersects with uh, behavioral economics. You always want to make the the best option for the user the default one. So, for instance, I think a famous example was Facebook's defaults for a while were very much the privacy compromising option, not the privacy preserving one. And I think in security, a lot of times, one, it's even hard to tell what the defaults are, but two, there's so much configuration and tuning required that there aren't just default configurations that kind of work out of the box, which I think is a huge problem. And it's not something you see in the rest of enterprise software. Um, so I think that's that's one area that could get a lot more innovation. I think another one is just totally misunderstanding workflows. Um, sometimes I think that security startups just fundamentally don't understand who the users of their products are and the, the whole spectrum of those users. They very much are focused on the buyer personas. So looking at the CISO and what the CISO would want to see, for example, like prettier reports without thinking about, okay, how can we save time of this you know security analyst that already has 500 million other things to do? So going back to Canary Tokens, you said that because they don't have VC funding, they're better. Um, why is that? I think when you don't have VC funding, I mean, one, you have to actually focus on profitability and stuff, but you can't a, a kind of growth hack, if you want to call it that. I've seen with a lot of security startups is they contact their kind of initial network and their VCs network. And that's how they get to, you know, maybe at best... 10 million annual recurring revenue. Um, but it's not necessarily true product market fit. If you don't take VC funding, you're going to basically sink or swim. Like you can't just, uh, I guess, mortgage the hype, so to speak. Um, you have to actually find real customers that aren't just talking to you because, you know, they also have taken money from the same investor that you have. It actually has to be real and they have to have in some ways more faith in you, um, because you don't have that lifeline from a VC. So I think it actually makes it, there's something to be said for, um, Kind of, I think there was a Silicon Valley episode about this as well. As well, but uh, constraining your resources actually allows you to be adaptable, right? Like it's similar to I think some people that have, you know, I don't know. It's actually a great example is I think it's Bill Gates, right? That made sure his kids are going to live comfortably, but not like so comfortably that they're never going to feel any pressure to do, right. you know, or they won't just end up doing nothing, right? Um, so I think it's very similar. If you raise, you know, 20 million in your second year of being alive, like what pressure do you really have to hustle to make sure you have product market fit? If you don't have any, if you don't have $20 million and you're just surviving off of the love of your customers, well, I think you're going to work a lot harder to please them. So let's say I'm building a sim um, and I was thinking about ease of use and I was thinking about good UX. What is the first thing I should care about? I would... Definitely research, uh, do user research to figure out how they're using the data. What other tools are using the data? You know, where, for example, like, does it eventually end up in an Excel spreadsheet for some reason? Like, how are they? what decisions is it leading to and where do those decisions sit? Who are those decision makers? So basically following the entire data pipeline and figuring out how to make that a lot easier, I think is a huge step. I think, frankly, in the SIM market, we see some of the SIM 2.0 companies or startups really being advertised. And a lot of that is just Splunk, but for less money, which is its own angle. <laughs> but I like to think that with some user research and really making sure that uh, to keep the data pipeline well lubricated, so to speak. I think that's that's a huge example. And again, like how to figure out how to cut down the signal to noise ratio is another big one. So can you do filtering before uh, the data actually hits the SIM is another good example. 
Um, so I've personally been trying to get better at UX research and especially like doing user surveys and like learning from them. Do you have any advice for any for people doing user surveys? Definitely. So I would say in general, I actually like having more user interviews than surveys, though obviously that's a lot more manual and a lot less scalable. So I think either way um, works. But the reason why I prefer interviews is I also feel like you can really get to the heart of problems better. Um so for example, like with the sim, they're like, oh, well, it takes too much time. It's like, okay, but why? You may think that, oh, we just need to like replace two clicks with one click, but is that really the problem? Or is it because they have to switch tabs to look in different consoles? Is it because they have to port the data elsewhere? Like really getting down and understanding the problem, even if it's the ultimate problem is all the other tools are generating so much work for them that they feel like overwhelmed. Maybe that's also an opportunity. So I think avoiding the surface explanations for why users are frustrated is important. Like really digging down into like, what are the true pains that they're experiencing? Because people don't always know why they're necessarily experiencing the pain. It may be whatever is the most easily identifiable when really it's a series of, you know, um, like micro actions that eventually bubble up into a horribly frustrating user experience. So I think, yeah, that that investigation is critical. Um, so when you're doing like, I guess, would you say it's like a diagnosis of these pain points? Oh, completely. Yeah. I think part, sometimes a big chunk of my job feels like uh, psychology, which isn't that necessarily <laughs> unrelated to like behavioral economics, but it's even like talking with CISOs, many of whom I count among friends, it's really listening to them, almost like therapy and like uh, kind of helping guide them through the process of like, okay, but what really is driving the anxiety, <laughs> you know, um, which can actually uh -huh. be a little fun. Like what? What problems from your childhood yeah. you, has affected you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Through your therapy for CISOs, have you noticed any trends? Um, were any of them bullied as a child? And like, that's why they... You know, no childhood explorations, <laughs> but I think a big... There, there are two key frustrations that stand out to me. One is overall, they feel very unempowered, which obviously no one likes to feel unempowered. And that's, it's generally they feel unempowered by the organization themselves, you know, because they are relegated often to being a cost center. They don't have a lot of room for innovation necessarily. You know, they're often seen as, and sometimes frankly, fairly seen as the people who just say no and hinder innovation, if anything. So I think that's one element of it. Another thing is definitely they're starting to get more fed up with vendor tactics. They're very frustrated by the fact that it's almost impossible to navigate the vendor landscape and figure out what's quality or not. Um, and I can definitely empathize with that. Like it would be terrible if the only way you could figure out, let's go back to makeup. The only way you could figure out what makeup was good is by having a whisper network among friends in a Slack channel where you ask them for recommendations. Like you can't just go to Sephora and look at the reviews and the pictures and everything. Like, no, you have to actually network with other people like you to figure out exactly what works. Like that's enormously frustrating. And I think they're right to feel like it shouldn't be that way. And it shouldn't be, you know, so arcane just to understand which product will help them the most. What would be like the equivalent for like a Sephora for CISOs? Oh, that's a great question. I think part of it is no one's really willing to be honest enough. And a lot of the agreements with vendors mean that they can't be. I know Gartner has a review thing, but I, I love a lot of the people at Gartner and it's part, you know, it's don't hate the player, hate the game, but a lot of it is little paid to play. And it's just, it's also selection bias and that Gartner reviews are generally encouraged by the vendor with the customers that love them. Very rarely do customers that hate a vendor proactively think, oh, I should write a terrible review about them on Gartner, right? So I think that's, they're attempting to do that, but it's not very functional. I mean, 
I I don't necessarily see a great solution until there's more transparency, and that doesn't seem to be changing anytime soon. So selection bias, I guess, can you explain a little bit about what that is? Sure. So selection bias is basically, um, for example, a part of the reason why you generally see on Amazon is either five-star reviews or one-star reviews is because if a project is, a, a product is just okay, you're probably not going to write about it. So that's why like the sample you end up getting is either people who absolutely love something or they're paid or uh, people who absolutely hate something. So again, with the Gartner thing, speaking from some experience, like generally what vendors will do is say, hey, customer who loves us, like it would be really meaningful to us if you write a Gartner review. And, you know, it's not necessarily... I, I don't want to make it seem like it's totally, uh, you know, compensated, but sometimes it'll be like, oh, and you'll be part of our customer advisory board or whatever else that makes them feel special. So, of course, they'll write a nice review. I think less so in the Amazon case, Gartner reviews. Also, I believe in order for a customer to leave a review, you have to be also registered in the Gartner network or whatever. And not everyone is. But also, like, why would you spend even wasting even more time in a vendor where you feel like your time's been wasted even by writing a negative review? Um, yeah. So I think there's pretty insane selection bias specifically in those review sets. There are a few other sites that I think kind of collect reviews. And as far as I know, they result in the same problems. There's really no like anonymous review network where people are just like, yep, this one sucks. This one took like two months to actually implement. I haven't seen anything like that other than in Slack channels and other kind of private communication. Have you seen any other types of biases in cybersecurity? Oh, like so many. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like uh, I probably have even another 10 talks I could create aside from the other 10 where I've talked about cognitive biases. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's I feel like if you just look at any cognitive bias, you can find example of it in security. And I think part of that is just security. Cognitive biases really come out. um, Well, I'll take a step back. So they're basically we have two different sorts of brains. We have what I call the lizard brain. So that's like fast and unconscious. You know, it's the oh crap, there's a bear. I better run from the bear sort of thinking. And then there's system two, which is more like the philosopher brain where you can contemplate like, what do I want to do with my life? And you can do that kind of over an extended period of time. And I think part of the problem with InfoSec specifically is that it really triggers um, the lizard brain because it's a very fraught environment. It's very stressful. You have this kind of like... Uh, you know, the risk over the shoulder, kind of like the T-Rex running after you in Jurassic Park, but it's security risk. So I, I think that's what causes lizard brain to show up so much. And when lizard brain is active, that's when cognitive biases really come through. So I think that's part of the re- reason why we see so much of it in information security. Well, I've definitely seen it in other parts of tech as well. Um, but you can even go with like time inconsistency bias, like I would say InfoSec in general is a very myopic industry. Like they don't think about long-term innovation in any way or even planning in the long-term. Frankly, like I think average CISO turnover is less than two years. So why would you in a certain sense? Um, And definitely prospect theory, like people way overweight, small probabilities, you know, the like uh, the Mossad sort of attack where they're going to like come, you know, with their USB drive to the CEO's office. And if that doesn't work, then they'll like infect like the CEO's, you know, AirPods or something ridiculous stuff like that. And then they're like, oh, phishing. Yeah, whatever. It's a solved problem. Meanwhile, phishing is still what, like 80% of attacks or something. So. So what does behavioral economics 
encompass? So uh, traditional economics, a lot of it is based on a lot of theory, um, kind of like if you think about like physics and stuff, you can imagine physics, but it's another thing, for example, with black holes, isn't it a lot cooler to like see the black hole than just imagine, oh yeah, maybe it exists in theory or whatever else. It's a lot more interesting to measure it. Um, the key thing with economics too, is it's in a lot of ways, a lot easier to measure things than like the black hole example, but a lot of people didn't for a long time. So it's stuck in theory land, but ultimately humans don't really exist in theory, right? So behavioral economics is basically the idea that you can empirically test a lot of these theories and you can use experiments to actually figure out how people behave and how they behave in certain conditions. Um, and that's why I love behavioral economics is economics is the study of choice. Behavioral economics is like studying how humans humans make choices, but through actual evidence and experimentation. How would you suggest a security engineer or anyone in the security space to get into behavioral economics? That's another good question. I think there there are tons of like pop sci books on it. And luckily, there are tons of online resources too. I mean, a lot of I think like Princeton, MIT, I think have some coursework either online or they have like the slides online and stuff. But I think a big part of it, and this is for the security industry in general, and they hate hearing this, by the way, and I know this from experience, is frankly just cultivating empathy more and thinking through like why people do like the number of times where people are like, oh, well, the user was just stupid or lazy. I'm like, is that it? Or are you just like judging them without really thinking about, okay, maybe they had time pressure or they had like their boss was mad at them. So they felt like they had to do something quickly. Like, I generally, I think if you blame something either on laziness or stupidity, you yourself are being somewhat stupid and lazy. You need to be thinking a lot more critically about what drives the behavior. So I think security engineers would benefit a lot just from like kind of basic psychology, to be honest, like what actually motivates people. And it's generally not a desire to be stupid or lazy. Generally, it's they want to get whatever they need to get done as quickly as possible. I won't even say as right as possible. I would say as quickly as possible, I think is the the main function. So yeah, I think starting with psychology or even just basics around that is important. So I would say if anything, it's more around the user research, user experience, and kind of the 101s around that are likely the most helpful. I think that's interesting because I think when like psychology and cybersecurity are put in the same sentence, I think the end result is always like social engineering. Yes. Um, so I think that's a cool, like a different way of thinking about, you know, like applying psychology to cybersecurity. For sure. I mean, one, one thing that I've joked is if in a world where any of this would be legal, one thing I would absolutely love to do is do like A-B experiments and user research and other stuff on the offensive side, right? Because it would be fun mm-hmm. to figure out, okay, what kind of phishing campaign works the best? Like, how can you better like leverage people's cognitive biases like to benefit mm-hmm. attackers? But um, so far, I haven't gotten any like legal offers to do that. So I don't anticipate <laughs> doing that in the near future. So for now, at least like examining it from the defensive lens is still is still a good enough challenge. So if you go on Kelly's website, you might find something that says, I run a top secret publication, return oriented. What was that? What is, uh, what is that super secretive mailing list newsletter? It is super secretive. And part of that is to make sure that the reader base, you know, it's very much in the thinking that, um, 
you know, almost if you if you're familiar with Game of Thrones, like Varys and the little birds, I want to make sure the reader list are all very valuable little birds who also can provide intelligence and signals. So everyone's contributing to the pot. But part of it is also there's just it, it goes back to the lack of honest examination. And I felt like whenever I read reviews about companies, it's either in, you know, tech publications where they're talking about, you know, why blockchain IoT security is going to revolutionize the world. Everyone rolls their eyes, but no one actually then writes a rebuttal about, no, this is stupid. The market size for this is approximately like $12 million. Like this company had no reason raising 50 million. So that was part of the motivation. And I do, aside from the super secret newsletter, I obviously talk about that a lot externally as well. Do you see any parallels between things that happen at Game of Thrones and things that happen in the security world? Ooh, yeah. So someone else actually joked on Twitter that soon will be a blog post from me about like drawing parallels from Game of Thrones to InfoSec. I haven't approached that yet, to be honest. Um, I need to think about it more because I'm sure it, there's such a, a wealth of characters. You know, particularly I would love to imagine like what the dragons represent, right? But right now I don't have any answers. I will say that um, I do love Varys the most out of all the characters. I am the master of whisperers. My role is to be sly, obsequious, and without scruples. I'm a good actor, my lord. I think you should do it. I think it'd be really cool. Not yeah. to give you more work for I know, yourself. right? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, really helping with my burnout, right? Now I'm thinking about the dragons and what they do. <laughs> um, dragons are pretty sweet. Do you think like dragons are maybe like the security tools that people rely on? Now, if I have to think off the top of my head, I would say the dragons are basically like DevOps, where it's like whatever security people control the DevOps opinions can basically burn everyone else to a crisp and get rid of them. Because ultimately, like if you are helping DevOps is fundamentally, like particularly as more companies become tech companies, like it's the engine of the business. And if you aren't with the engine of the business, like they will figure out how to make you irrelevant. Like at a certain point, if security just keeps saying no, they're going to be pushed by the wayside and you're already seeing budget open up among people like in DevOps teams to actually buy security tools. So I personally think if security doesn't want to become irrelevant, then you need to embrace the dragons, not work against them. There you go. The analogy. Okay. There we go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we did it. You don't have to write a blog post on it. because. But there were no gifts because this is a podcast and it definitely requires dragon gifts. You can make it like a screenshot, the cover art of yeah, this there podcast. You go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we were talking about this last time is that, you know, it's a Saturday at like 3 p.m. We're recording a podcast. So we both, at least for me, like I don't have a social life. Um, what do you do for self-care? Yeah, I don't have a social life either, really. Um, yeah, it's, it's a tough question. And I do have an honest answer, though. It's not one people like to hear is like, I, I definitely struggle constantly with burnout. I'm not sure if I have a great self-care routine because... I feel like I'm constantly thinking of new things to research and new things to do. Another uh, angle of it is I do have a chronic illness, which limits the amount that I can actually go out and do things and socialize and stuff. So a lot of it is also just making sure to take care of myself physically. Um, you know, luckily with Game of Thrones coming out, like I have a forced at least one, well, now it's over one hour every Sunday that I have to definitely do something else other than work. Um but I think it's also like making sure to pace yourself towards I like basically have to schedule like fun time and make a commitment like, okay, this Saturday, other than the podcast, like I'm going to make sure to like go to the gym, go to the farmer's market, and then, you know, maybe do some work. Um, but it's, it's constantly a struggle. And I think a lot of people in the industry struggle with it. And that's why 
I tend not to recommend to people like, oh, make sure to have a good work work life balance because frankly, none of my success is based on having a good work life balance as much as I wish that were true. Um, so, what's occupying your mind now? Because I know you you do a lot of like personal research. Oh, tons, yeah, all the time. So, I'm definitely right now very much on a kick of making a convincing argument about DevOps and security being BFFs or security just going by the wayside if they don't make DevOps their BFF. And uh, actually, Dr. Nicole Forsgren and I submitted a talk to Black Hat about that. So we'll see on that. Okay. Um, so changing the topic a little bit. Um, Swagita? Swag- Swagita. Swag- Swagita. What is Swagita? So in finance, there is EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. It is often, though not in tech, um, the measure of basically used as a proxy for profitability to better translate it across industries. Um, And it's mostly what's used to drive valuations. Like, for example, 20 times EBITDA would be an EBITDA multiple. So uh, I created Swagita. And I don't think I was the first to necessarily think about it. Um, but Swagita is basically a multiple of how much swag you have. So if you want to value yourself as a person uh, based off how much swag you have, then it's the Swagita multiple. So it's really a like millennial finance joke, which I created back when I was more finance than security, which now no one understands because probably they're like two people among my Twitter followers who are finance people. And then the rest are security people. So it's a joke. I think most people don't get. That's okay. I didn't know that was a. I didn't know the finance had jokes. I, I, <laughs> so many jokes, dude. This is the thing that I, I will constantly tell people if they ask is that uh, investment bankers take themselves far less seriously than information security professionals, which cracks me up to no end. So, um, what do you think of the whole Patagonia thing that's happened? I think it's great. Um, if anything, I've seen more finance people joke about it themselves than who are actually mad about it. But I think it makes sense, right? Like if I'm Patagonia, like you don't necessarily want to, if you're kind of the hippie, crunchy granola outdoor company, you don't necessarily want to be associated with, you know, uh, Ferragamo loafers and, you know, $1,000 tailored suits or anything. I don't know. Patagonia is like the supreme of white collars. So. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I do not personally own a Patagonia vest. So maybe because I don't have a stake in it. That's why I'm not too upset. I do still have uh, one of my uh, investment banker gym bags. There's like a very notable bag. If you rock around the city, you'll recognize. But do you think that like we could ever create like a hype? Hype it up. Yeah, I think so. It's a little uh-huh. harder to say, but yeah, I would encourage anyone to figure out a hype it Though I think swag it is a better like hype it to me is almost a measure of being overvalued right because hype isn't a good thing swag is generally a good thing well that's actually that's what i'm talking about right like uh this is going back to the rsa buzzword bingo yep do you think that we could possibly create a hype hype it I don't know. I think that yeah. needs refining yeah but um, I, I like the spirit of it though is basically like okay how much are you overvalued yeah like how much right. are you overhyped i like it so Speaking of the RSA buzzword bingo, um, what was or how did you come up with those buzzwords? This time, so in prior years, it was basically uh, driven off of what I was hearing in the market and what stuck out to me the most. This year, I actually took an empirical approach. I think I took a hundred companies. It was either fifty or a hundred companies, most of whom were uh, exhibiting at RSA and manually went through their websites, uh, just the homepage and the product pages, not the other pages, to see which buzzwords occurred the most, then basically sorted mm-hmm. by which ones were most frequent. 
Um, which one was your favorite of this year? Favorite? I mean, they all kind of make me want to die and leave the industry, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but the one that, that definitely stood out to me was the real world, which I, I'm not necessarily opposed to it, but it's just, to me, it's just such a statement of the industry that we even have to clarify like that a threat is real world and not made up because so many of the threats that vendors talk about are made up. Like the fact that real world even has to exist as a buzzword says volumes about the industry well now we have like vr and ar so like i feel like real world is slowly becoming <laughs> more of a yeah so that speaking of which that that was a category that looked like it was going to take off last year security ar and i'm so glad it died a very quick death though maybe i should wait before i say that do you see anything in cybersecurity that worries you oh so much that worries me um i'm not sure where to begin um just do multiple podcast episodes that's yeah (laughs) (laughs) things that worry me i think the biggest thing that worries me is the lack of improvement over time i've now been in the industry about six years maybe seven depending on how you define it and it just the level of resistance towards improvement is frankly rather astonishing um i think frankly, that a lot of the old culture has to die before we can make progress. The whole notion of like, there's absolute security and security should be a barrier and all of that. And this is, you know, the way that we've always done security. Um, And I think that extends to culture as well. Like this is, you know, um, I want my security to look a certain way and speak in a certain way. Like, I think that you're never going to make progress if you stick with that. So I think that's one thing that worries me is just the lack of overall progress. I think, uh, Another thing that worries me is the whole VC dynamics, which I've talked about at length in a bunch of places, but basically there's not a lot of great incentive to actually fund tools that work really well versus tools that could potentially get acquired for a lot of money. Um, uh, I'm a little worried about cyber insurance, actually, and I do advise a cyber insurance company, but that's partially because they actually understand that they... They, they actually want to learn about security and I think they're doing things the right way. Um, I think a lot of companies are not doing things the right way and I see a potential for cyber insurance to end up with a really pernicious incentive problem, which is um, that if you're, let's go back to an Equifax, right? You have a cyber insurance policy for 200 million and you get breached, right? Well, Equifax isn't the one necessarily getting hurt. It's the users who now have all of their information exposed. It's not like they get the $200 million, right? So that's that's what's called the principal agent problem, where it's basically you can do very little to secure yourself, but as long as you have cyber insurance, you may treat the risk as solved, but you aren't the one who actually has to bear most of the costs of a breach. So I see that kind of on the horizon, and that definitely worries me. Okay. On a, I guess, like less depressing note, um, less bad things about cybersecurity. What are some things you see in cybersecurity that excite you, whether it's a movement or a company or whatever? Honestly, it's a lot of the people. I feel like I've seen and heard so many like fresher voices even over the past year. So I'm really excited that finally, like I think it's been a lot of effort on, you know, people who frankly were like how I was a few years ago, like pushing their way into the industry, even though they had a very different perspective. And I'm really happy that's starting to happen and that it's not so much of an echo chamber. So I I really hope that continues. I think also there's a lot of great movement on even like open source projects at uh, enterprises that realize that they have a problem themselves and are trying to solve it. Um, So that's another exciting thing. It seems like people are getting more passionate about defensive innovation and taking pride in it. So I think that's pretty neat. Beyond that, um, I think it's, I definitely have more worries than things about which I'm excited. Okay. That's, 
sad to hear. Um, so throughout your process of, you know, joining from going from investment banking and behavioral economics and joining the security world and working at Capsule 8, um, and also, you know, working on a lot of your really awesome personal research um, about security, what is one lesson that you have learned and something that you think the audience should take away with? Well, that's a fantastic question. Um, I think really trusting your instincts. Like there were plenty of times that I felt like what I had to say was valuable, but when I would kind of hear the rest of the, um, I guess, infosec industry talking about it, I was like, well, maybe I'm also just totally insane. So I think going with your gut and still trying it out is worthwhile. Um, I've definitely been told by people. Um, you know, I had someone tell me that I needed to publish like a proper academic paper before I could start speaking at conferences, which by the way, I've never done. And I've spoken at plenty of conferences. And I know that a lot of security teams have found what I said to be valuable. And that's ultimately the most rewarding is knowing that you helped make someone's job a little better, at least easier. Um, so I think going with your instincts, being fearless and not compromising your integrity is important. Like I've never shilled for something I didn't want to show, right? Like I, I tend to be honest and you can ask the marketing people at Capsulate, like I'll definitely be honest when I think something is, um, you know, not, uh, yeah, yeah. When I disagree with something. So I think those are the two most important things is the integrity. And then also like trusting your gut and being fearless about it and putting yourself out there. Cool. Awesome. Um, okay. Well, Kelly Shortridge, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. Do you have any shameless plugs, words of wisdom, shout outs, anything you'd like to tell? Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. Um, I would I would love for anyone to check out some of my writing and speaking and stuff. Um, but otherwise, yeah, try out the Capsulate open source sensor. That'll be my only shameless plug for this episode. Um, I'm also going to tell everyone to look at Between Two Kernels because yes. yeah. I get a kick out of it. Also, I learn a lot of really interesting things. Oh, thank you. Hey there. Thanks for listening. I would highly recommend checking out Between Two Kernels. You can catch the show on YouTube and also find it on the Capsulate website. You can also find Kelly's research on her website swagata.com or on Medium by looking for Kelly Shortridge. You can also check us out at hackerculture.fm. That's hackerculture.fm. This episode was recorded and mixed by me. Special thanks to Kelly for an awesome conversation. and We wish her the best at Capsule 8. And of course, thank you, listener, for tuning in. You can let us know what you thought of this episode by tweeting at Hacker Culture FM. And if you liked it, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or leave me a message on Anchor. And don't forget to tune in next week on wherever you listen to podcasts.